Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. My guest today is Holly Middleton of Flow Movement Therapy. On this episode, we discuss many different topics related to aim or anatomy and motion, which is a system created by Gary Ward that details the body's anatomy during movement processes. Anatomy is important, and by understanding anatomy while it's in motion, we gain a greater clarity about its function. Things change when the foot hits the ground, and our body has to self-organize in response. We start out by discussing the movement spectrum and how we can harness the power of this concept to expand a client's movement profile as well as proficiency. We discuss postural considerations and the concept of preferred center position. Holly shares different considerations for the foot and different issues that may persist in this region. She also details different manners by which we can utilize the wedges created by Gary Ward. Holly shares how she uses various intake measures to gain understanding of the needs of her clients. I'm always intrigued to bring on new perspectives, and this episode covers a lot of topics that I find to be of great importance as well as interest. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and my guest today is Holly Middleton. How's it going, Holly? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast today. Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm really looking forward to our talking points. You know, we talked a little bit through emails and we talked a little bit before we started the recording process and you're associated with AIM, correct? AIM. That's right. Uh, anatomy, anatomy and Motion. Anatomy mm-hmm. and Motion. So I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment to kind of discuss what that is, because it's really going to kind of guide our, our lens in which we're viewing these different perspectives from. So how we kind of view some of these different things we'll be discussing today, but excited to, to talk to you about that because the very name Anatomy and Motion Anatomy is great, but if you study a bunch of cadavers, what are you really getting from it, especially if you're going into things that I'm interested in, such as athletic performance? So I've had James Earls on. I know whenever you emailed me and we were discussing, you know, James does a great job about talking about functional anatomy and the flow of the body. So I always, and I've had Jordan Terry on as well, which you referenced, and they're always talking about the flow of the body and the movement of the body and multiple systems and components. So the body is so dynamic, so excited to sit down and kind of expand on some of those other concepts today. Before we jump into those main points, I just want to give you an opportunity to tell people where you're located, uh, kind of the different things that you're involved in, and then we'll get rocking and rolling. Sounds good. So I am in Vancouver, Canada, so it's on the Pacific coast of Canada, and I am a movement coach. I'm also a certified personal trainer, so can fit for can fit pro certified personal trainer and what i do is i help athletic people up leveling their performance by teaching them to fine-tune their movement patterns and so like you mentioned i'm an anatomy and motion practitioner and so what that means is that i have a laser focus looking at what movements your body is missing so those things that have been deleted from your nervous system's awareness those movements that are missing that are the, the key to being able to get your athletic performance back. So whether that's foot function, as we talked about, you had James Earls on, whether it's you know a scapula that can't move, whatever it is that's been deleted from your awareness in your body. I use my laser focus in my assessments of movement to be able to see what's missing and maybe that you've been chasing after something that you're trying to get your body to do and haven't been able to figure it out. And it could be something really subtle that uh, you're not aware of at all because your body's essentially deleted that from your awareness. And so anatomy in motion takes a skeleton based approach. We look at gait, 
the gait cycle. So what um, your body has to be able to do every movement throughout your gait cycle. And so the gait cycle will reveal all the things that are missing in your body. You can't fake the, the things in your walk. Um, and so we can see what's going on and what's not going on in your body. And then we take a, an approach of re educating your body on the things that's forgotten in each of those joints throughout um, throughout your body to bring it back. Um, the end result being better alignment, better awareness of being able to access different movements, different muscles, whatever it is that you need to do. And like we say, if you can walk well, you can do everything else well. And so that's our goal is to be able to restore those missing things from your movement vocabulary, to be able to do th things in whatever the sport is that you're doing. All great points that you kind of referenced there. And, and you, you said the skeletal process, like one of my favorite, I guess, terms from across the palm would be skeletal, um, as they yes. typically say. So I love it whenever they throw that out there. I love whenever I have someone from England or across and from Europe, they typically have that. A pronunciation. So I well, love I, that. I do too, because I've learned all of my anatomy from Gary Ward. And so many of my pronunciations are the, and I'm, I'm Canadian, so that also biases it. But my, my pronunciations, people are often, even in the clinic, they'll be like, the what now? <laughs> <laughs> and that's just the, the lens that I have that's so different. For sure. So this first talking point kind of references the term spectrum, because like looking at all the different things that I've read from uh, anatomy and um, motion and and looking at just life in general, I often talk about and refer back to a spectrum because I feel like everything pretty much exists on a spectrum to where we have extreme opposites existing on opposite ends and it comes together to produce this thing in the middle. Now, if you get too far to one end of the spectrum, obviously that's where we begin to see dysfunction like water it can be extremely it can be fluid or it can be you know extremely porous and extremely tough so the thing is like we need that access to all ends of the spectrum and i feel like that's really going to be one of our guiding points as we move throughout this entire conversation so let's talk a, a little bit about how movement exists on a spectrum and how this point of view can grant a greater position of clarity for us and how it can also increase movement competency and proficiency for individuals. So let's talk about moving people towards that middle end of the spectrum, accessing it all. Right. So one of the, the talking points is that Gary Ward has five big rules of motion. And one of them is that everything orbits around center. And so you have your own perceived center of where your center is in each of your joints. So say perhaps your ribs are shifted to the right a little bit. So those ribs in that resting position shifted to the right, that's your center in terms of your awareness in your body. So when, I, when I'm doing assessments with people, I'll have them stand still and I'm looking at their posture and their posture tells me where their perceived center is, where they think neutral is, where it's the most efficient way for them to just to come to rest in their body. And so if your rib cage is shifted to the right, for example, and that's your center, then how far, how much more to the right do you think you can go in your rib cage? And then how far to the left do you have potential to go? So if your center is shifted right, you can go probably a little bit right, and you can probably come back towards your neutral, and then maybe a little bit left, but you're not going to access your full range of motion there in that rib cage. So you can't go very far right because you're already right. And then when you try to go left, you might achieve a neutral position or maybe a little bit more, but there's a whole bunch left on the table in terms of going left that you just don't have access to. 
And so that's one of the principles in anatomy and motion is that your perceived center is going to dictate the potential of everything that you can do in your body. It's going di to dictate the pain that you're experiencing, and it's going to dictate what you have the ability to be aware of in terms of how much space you have to move into. And so a lot of the work that we do in anatomy and motion is reminding your brain, your nervous system, where the actual center is in your body, in, the, in all of those joints. So you have the full potential to go right and left. Instead of being, being slightly right is your center, then that's taken away your ability to go in each of those directions that you want to. And then that changes the other planes as well. So if you're shifted to the right, you don't have as much access with rotation or flexion and extension. And so being able to remind your body where that center is brings back that full potential that, of everything that you want to use. And then if we add the muscles on top of that, if you're shifted to the right, that means that those some muscles are going to be long and some muscles are going to be short. And so those muscles are just doing their best to manage the joint positions that you have, and they're not able to fully get their length and then fully contract. And so if we're able to show you back to where your center is, it gives those muscles some more ease that they can rest at ease rather than resting with a little bit of tension and so that can alleviate a lot of things as well. So you're like, I have a tight, weak muscle, for example, and I've been stretching it and it's not really uh, giving me relief for very long. Well, it may be that those muscles are just working really hard so you don't fall over to the right. <laughs> so we want to show your body how to get you back into that center position because it brings back the potential for your movement. But it also gives some relief to those muscles that are working hard, doing their job to make sure that you don't fall over. So that's a great line of rationale that you present there. And I'll just kind of say a couple of things uh, tying to that. And I didn't say this, you made your first point, but like I see awareness really uh, kind of sticking out through in this conversation. And, and I've actually brought that point up over the last couple of podcasts that I've done because I've done a lot of stuff about breath work um, on the last couple of episodes that, are, that have just recently come out. So having the awareness of movement, of our breathing processes, of all things, you have to call awareness to something. If you're not aware, I really say you're not truly experiencing it, right? You're just, it's subconscious essentially. And that's what breathing is autonomic, but we can take conscious control of it, right? Just like we can the actions of our body, our gait cycle can be extremely like it's not autonomic. Obviously, we're we're calling things out, but we're on autopilot essentially a lot of the times whenever we're walking or moving about. So we move around without a, a great sense of awareness. So that was going through my mind. I didn't say that whenever you kind of went through your first couple of talking points. Also, on um, my last episode with Robbie Scott, we talked a lot about about breathing. And he talked about being pushed forward. He finds a lot of people are pushed forward because they're overextended typically between like that pelvis and and the especially rib and spinal region because their breathing mechanics typically push anteriorly more often. So we talked a good bit about that. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I never thought of that. But what's the first problem I typically have with people? They're on their toes constantly, it seems like, especially in a weight room or resistance metrics. So that's something that was, uh, I was thinking about as far as finding that center and then from a muscular approach as well like that agonist antagonist uh relationship you talked about the fact that you know the muscle function could be kind of not optimal if we're not in the correct joint position it can throw off those agonists and antagonists you see someone who's shaking and straining whenever you want that dynamic fluid movement so as i listen to you explain all that a lot of those different things were kind of popping up in my head 
Yeah, well, for for the muscles, especially that one of the other big rules that Gary Ward has with anatomy in motion, anatomy in motion is that you have muscles that have to lengthen before they contract. So you need to be able to just like the center finding center sort of talking point we just had, that if you are able to uh, find the center of those joints, it means then that muscle can get as long and as short as it possibly can. And in order to give the muscles something to do, those bones they're attached to have to move apart from one another. So in order to get the most potential out of a muscle, we need to be able to lengthen it first before it contracts. It's kind of like the analogy of a slingshot. So if you pull back the elastic on a slingshot just a tiny bit, the rock is going to fall just in front of your feet. But if you pull it all the way back as far as you can, it will give it the full potential for it to use that kinetic energy in the, the elastic, or i.e. the muscle, to propel the rock or you forward or in whatever direction you're going in. And so if that muscle is always sitting in a lengthened state because it's holding on to a joint that's always open, then the potential for it to fire and to do something with that muscle is, is sort of dampened down. You just don't have the potential out of it. And same thing, if the muscle is, is in a neutral state and then you contract it, you're not getting the full potential out of it either. So the most potential out of that muscle is if you can find the center of that joint so it knows how to rest, so that then you can lengthen the muscle by moving the bones apart from each other with its full potential, and then that muscle can fire. But also that if you have a centered joint, then it means that you can use the muscle in all three planes of motion. Not just in the one plane. So say if you're like the rib analogy, if your rib is out, your ribs are out to the right, then you're not able to fully get the access to all of the three planes of motion of all the muscles around your rib cage, because they're in one plane of motion, they're quite, uh, quite long or quite short on the other side. And so we want to be able to, to give the muscle its full potential to do what it wants to do by finding the center of that joint first. So then it knows how to go away, to take the bones away from each other, to give that muscle length. And so that's the something that we, we don't consider all the time is that a muscle needs to know what to do. It doesn't know its job. The muscle, as Gary likes to say, is just a, a dumb manager of joint position that the muscle sort of goes, well, those bones are going apart. You better pull them so it doesn't dislocate. That's essentially what muscles are doing. They're just sitting there waiting for instructions. And if you move the skeleton, the skeleton is that substructure that gives the muscles and the fascia something to do. And if we move it in, in, in an appropriate way that gives the feedback from the feet all the way up to the head with everything coordinating as, as it was intended, then all those muscles can do what they're supposed to and not start barking at you that they're angry that, you know, a muscle is doing too much because another muscle isn't doing enough. And so it sometimes it just comes down to being able to put those joints where they belong, teaching them how to work together um, in coordination throughout the, that kinetic chain to be able to get the muscles. So finally, they can exhale and do their job rather than trying to do someone else's job. It's kind of like the analogy of a of a, a factory, the conveyor belt, and somebody goes on their break and they're not putting the things into the boxes, <laughs> then everything falls off the end, right? Or somebody's trying to do all the boxing for someone else. The muscles are like that. They're some of them, they'll pick up the slack. Your body is super, super clever. It will figure out how to get something done. It will get it done in some way, even if it may be not the, the way that feels the best, it will still get that movement done. And you know, athletes are good compensators. We'll figure out a way to get the thing done, even 
if there may be a more fluid, simpler way of getting it done, we'll still get it done. Absolutely. And I, I think we often forget, I mean, survival is still our first you know, priority, but we don't live in uh, a setting where survival is at stake perhaps all the time for most of us, we would say, right? We're in a very modernized setting. So like survival is the main thing. So our body's going to find a way to get it done like you just referenced. So a couple of points that that stuck out to me there is, again, I want to go back into that joint, the centering of the joints and just kind of talk about it because sometimes it's like just verbiage or different terms that we each use. So some of us may be familiar with it in another way, but let's just talk about, because I think some of us have like our areas we love, right? Like I'm always talking about the foot area or the lower leg or the pelvis region. And we may have good ideas of what true center looks like there, but let's talk about some of the different areas of the body and what we would look for, for like competency and uh, joint joint centration, essentially finding that true center. A joint that's in neutral is neither open nor closed in all three planes of motion. So it's not rotated to the right. It's facing forward. It's not open, like flexed or extended. It's sitting in the center and it's not laterally flexed or abducted or whichever joint you're in. It's sitting right in the middle. So the sort of its anatomical center position, it knows where that is and it's able to find that with competency. So it may be that you are um, like you were talking about the the positioning of some of your, your clients where their, their weight is more forward all the time. So that would be in a situation where there's joints that are open all the time and joints that are closed all the time. And so in, able, in order to be able to find those the centering of those joints, we want to be able to put you into movements that show your body, here's the full range of motion in that joint so that your body can find its way back into where the center actually is. Because now it has full awareness of full extension and full flexion. And so once we re-educate your body on where those the full extent of that range of motion is, the brain goes, oh, there's a lot more left than I thought there was. And I don't need to hang out right because now I have some awareness of where that left is. And it actually feels a bit better for me over like globally if I use a little bit more of that left so that I'm a little bit more centered. And so that's what our process is doing is finding all of those places that are a little bit missing. And when I do my postural assessments, of course, you can go through a textbook and say, okay, well, this joint has to align exactly like this and a plumb line should run through here and those sorts of things. But what I'm really looking for is ease of movement. Like you talked about flow, right? There's a reason why my business is called flow movement therapy, right? <laughs> and the flow motion model of Gary, Gary Ward's model is because you want to be able to find a place of ease. And for each of us, you know, our bones are all different, our proportions are different. And we want to be able to find for your body what feels best right now. So it may be not that and good luck finding a human being that's perfectly centered everywhere, right? None of us are because we've gone through our life, we've gone through our experiences. And our body is being as efficient as it possibly can at all times. And so if you are looking for that perfection, your body is going to fight against that. Because what we want to do is find your most efficient way of moving now as you start making those changes in your body. So if we so I've, I've had this, I've, I've asked people to square up their feet. So square your feet up to the front, square everything up and then ask them how they feel. They feel awful because you haven't given them any inputs into how to find that center with with um, completely involuntarily. 
So, it, in, and you've probably tried this. If you try to square everything up, you feel, oh, it's like the outside of my hip is tense and my shoulders hurting and things don't feel quite right. If we forced you into anatomical perfection, into that alignment, we haven't given your nervous system any information to figure out how to get there and what to do to be there and to stay there without you forcing yourself into that space. And so that's what we want to do as anatomy and motion practitioners is we find, we help you find your own center involuntarily by showing you where all of those potentials are that you're ignoring and you're ignoring them for good reasons. It's survival again, survive the human. It hurt when I did that last time. So I'm not going to move into that space. And so we want you to find your anatomical neutral positions, not because I've told you your knee has to be exactly like this and your hip should be right there, but that your body has discovered that it's actually a bit better if I go more towards neutral right now, because I've been given the information to find my way there on my own. No, I just I just like that you're presenting like providing that novel slash variable experience for them to self-organize essentially, because if it's just you're the director all the time, especially for like athletic processes. If you're the director for all the time, like you need a level of proficiency or competency to make sure that people don't get hurt. But also at the same time, you want people to naturally kind of find their own movement processes and profile towards that uh, that neutrality that we've been talking about. And I also like kind of what you brought up there, like this idea of fluctuation, because as humans, we're constantly in flux. Like I discuss a lot of neurological considerations on this podcast. And the thing is, like if you do muscle tests and if you do different things to, to look at the different sensory systems, you're going to find that something that was a threat one day is not a threat another day. And then once you address that, it's going to come back. It's not like a you've checked the box and you fix it. We're in flux all the time. And it's like you pointed to, it's for our survival. It's how we organize in the moment. So all of those points, really good. Didn't mean to cut you off there. So anything you wanted to throw in there? <laughs> yeah. So like you say that we're constantly changing and um, I, I listen to a, a lot of different um, movement practitioners and, and a lot of them when they're they're coaching um, a very specific skill in a sport, they don't want to say that everyone needs to be a cookie cutter and do everything exactly the same. So I don't need my entire team to move exactly the same way. So and even if you um, if you you're someone who throws a ball for your sport, you won't throw the ball exactly the same way every single day and every single game situation, you're going to be throwing the ball slightly differently because every setting is slightly different. So we want to be able to give your body the full potential of its, um, it, it can move in every which weird, wonderful way that it needs to, rather than a prescriptive, the knee must be at exactly this number of degrees relative to the talus. And we want to show your body that it has all of the possible movements available to it at any given time that it should need it. Maybe you need to evade and jump over somebody all of a sudden, or you didn't realize that the curb was a little bit deeper than you thought, you know, or a, a stair. Have you, you've ever walked up the stairs and they're a little bit different height than you're used to? All those sorts of things, your body needs to be able to manage unpredictable things. And how many times if I, I, I work as a physio assistant as well, and how many times someone has said, oh, I tripped and then I injured something. But if your body was resilient to those tiny little things that are going on day to day, you wouldn't have the, the an issue with suddenly having to reach really far in one direction that you haven't practiced, for, for example, that your body has 
it has the versatility to be able to do all of those movements and you haven't even practiced them. And I've had that happen to me. I was a dancer, I was performing and we were, I was giving my hundred percent on the, on the, the stage and my ankle, I wore, wore three inch heels. I was a salsa dancer and I, um, my heel, my, uh, my heel inverted suddenly in a turn. And I was able to write myself really quickly because I practiced supination. I practiced supination and how to get out of that into my neutral position. And because I've practiced a supination, I didn't practice how to not twist my ankle in a turn. I have taught my body how to get out of its end range quickly back into neutral. Instead of an ankle sprain, I had a, wow, what was that? It happened before I was even aware of it. And I credit that to the fact that I have daily gone through an exploration of where my end ranges are, how to get in and out of them in a safe environment, not in a high stress environment, but in a safe environment where I've shown myself, okay, yeah. So I had that injury way back in the day of sprained that ankle, but I can get into that shape and it's not scary anymore. Because my body has locked down and said, don't ever get into that shape ever again. But then all of these other things in your body get upset a decade later. But that if I go back into that shape and I see that, oh, yeah, okay, it doesn't hurt anymore. And your body goes, that's actually an okay thing to do. So let's start exploring what that means. If I can supinate again, what does that mean? What other things free up for me? So it's kind of a an important exploration of, of where am I not aware that I'm moving into because certain patterns, either you're like, I have people who are fencers and they always have the right leg forward. I think it's the right leg. Yes. The right leg forward or the left, whatever the, the, the leg forward that they always have. And they're not able to get out of that shape because they've trained that for me to survive this game, I must be good at this. And it's either that, that a very specific pattern you've trained into your body or injuries cause me to not want to move into certain shapes. And those two things are going to really dictate the potential of the movements that you have. And so that's what we want to unwind is why is it that you don't want to put your ribs over there? Was it an accident that that was bad and your nervous system said, we don't want to do that? Or is it the sport that you played? Say so you, you're a swimmer and you always breathe to the right. Well, you probably can't rotate your head to the left. And you probably have a jaw that's displaced. So these sorts of things, we want to get curious. Why is it that your body is doing these particular things? And what can we reintroduce? And how can that give you freedom to be able to do other things? No, good point. <laughs> what, what, was going through my, what was going through my head as you're speaking on that? Yeah, you talked about like taking an unexpected step. I like to play Russian roulette, not literally people, but I won't turn the lights on whenever I go down these steep stairs. I live on the second level of my housing arrangement and I won't turn the lights on. I do this frequently and I guess I'm good at it because I perform a lot of depth jumps. Um, so whenever <laughs> I miss that first or second step, it gets me every time. I don't know why I won't turn the light on, but I've had that experience much in my life. Yeah. Um, something else that was going through my mind is actually throwing it back to one of the podcasts you referenced whenever we spoke is Jordan Terry reference the repetitive motions and how those can cause restrictions. And that's kind of what you were talking about there. And I've had that actually run through as a common thread and theme through multiple podcasts. Now, how that repetitive movements can put us into postures, essentially, especially in a competitive nature. And uh, we actually talked about, you know, the breathing mechanics and 
and how like football pads or hockey pads and all these things, how they restrict you and they put you in a more narrow space. And like you've been referencing, like the ribs could be disjointed. They You get moved more and more and more into a narrower space until it's like you're almost drinking through, you know, a, you're breathing through a straw essentially, you know, um, and that becomes normal even whenever you're not wearing those um, different pads and things. So those things were going through my mind. Something I want to throw out there. Um, the last thing kind of in light of this talking point, it comes from a little bit back, the idea of muscles lengthening before they can contract. And that's something, yeah, I completely and totally agree with that elastic uh, recoil in the rubber band, but let's talk about like that process. So are we talking about taking us to the end ranges of motion before we go to more like specialized joint areas or how would we go about practicing that lengthening which you referenced earlier yeah so what we do is i have training with gary ward uh, he has a model of the human gait cycle so every single joint and every single phase in the gait cycle has a specific type of movement that it's meant to do based on the just the surfaces of the joints and the the if you add gravity and momentum on top of that. So as you move through your gait cycle, each joint is meant to do certain types of movement. I don't want to use should, but is is designed to move in a certain way. And if those joints aren't doing what they're supposed to do, they're going to ask another joint to try to do that motion for them. And so if you've had an injury and opening a joint is painful, then it's going to negotiate movement from other joints to try to get that movement done. And so what's going to happen is that certain joints aren't used to doing the movement that they're meant to do, and other joints are doing too much of those movements. And so what we want to do is look at what I, what I do in my assessments is I look at what joints you essentially have forgotten how to move in the certain planes of motion. And I want to bring that back, but also see, say, if when you flex your knees, you're not getting a certain movement in your pelvis, well, then I can see that those connections are missing. And so I want to reintroduce when a knee flexes, a pelvis anterior tilts. And then up the chain, there's a certain set of commands that should happen throughout the sagittal plane. And so I want to re-coordinate all of those joints moving the right amount at the right time relative to one another so that they're communicating with each other. And then what happens there is that all the muscles that are around each of those joints gets the feedback that they need to know what to do. So we need to be able to teach all of the movements in each of those joints to coordinate in each of the phases of the gait cycle. So when you're, for example, your pronation would be when you are loading your body onto one of your legs. So when you're loading your body onto your leg, all of your arches are dropping down. You have your knee flexing and rotating. We call it an external rotation, but you can think about your kneecap is rotating towards the midline. You would have a whole bunch of things happening at your hip and your pelvis all the way up your spine. All of those things need to coordinate together. And then all of the muscles that are around each of those joints will either get long or short, depending on the, the plane of motion and what their job is to, to manage each of those joints. So in pronation, you have a lot of joints that are open. You have all of those tissues on your foot are opening up. They're loading. Your, your body weight is, is loading on top of those with gravity as well. Your knee is open. Your hip is open. Your, you have all of these tissues that are open. And so your body is 
with the opening of those joints is lengthening all of those muscles. And once you lengthen all those muscles, you get that full potential out of them. So if you're not getting a pronation, if you're not loading your body fully on top of that foot, if you're not able to flex the knee and rotate the knee, if you're not able to adduct, hike the pelvis, rotate the pelvis, all of the things that you need to do, then some of those muscles aren't getting their feedback. And so we want to be able to get each of those pieces of the puzzle working together in coordination so that you get a well-coordinated pronation and you get a well-coordinated set of muscles where they're working at their most efficient they possibly can. They're not, they're neither too long or too short. They're just right, sort of that Goldilocks place so that there's just enough of the muscle getting length and the, the opposite muscles getting short, doing what they're supposed to do to help you efficiently get in and out of that motion. So once you've loaded everything in pronation, that's when you can then use your supinations. You can actually get out of that, that motion. And so that's what we want to do is to try to get each of the bones moving in the in coordination with all the other bones at the right time, the right amount, and getting you loaded on top of those those joints to give the muscles the feedback they need to know what to do. Yeah, good points. And and I feel like it attaches nicely to this. Like you referenced a lot about pronation and supination. And actually some of the systems that I work through and that I'm familiar with, they label a lot of things with pronation or supination with that idea of collapse and that idea of return with expansion and compression. So every every model kind of again has its own terminology, but like tying back to that, it it really speaks to me because it's how I label a lot of different things and rationale. So looking at this next point, I would like to jump down to the the foot and actually talk about that because I like to look top down or bottom up either way is fine, but let's go from a bottom up approach for the moment. And let's talk about some of these deficiencies that we may see from that particular angle, such as being stuck or being limited in dorsiflexion or in plantar flexion, being stuck in that pronated or supinated state. You can choose whichever one you would like, and then we can kind of specialize from there. I'm more often see the supination and pronation issues like the collapse or either being stuck on that rigid edge, or I see actually leading from the hip. And again, we like to be laser pointed. It may not even be from there. You know, we have to step back and think, but I see a lot of like pigeon toed or people that are completely splayed open um, as far as internal or external rotation. So any of those that you're interested in or that you'd like to talk about particular prescriptions about how we can introduce that other end of the spectrum, which you just referenced. Sure. And I think a lot of with anatomy in motion is it's, it's not necessarily a, um, it's not a method. It's a philosophy. It's a philosophy of thinking about why is your body doing that to begin with? And so all the things that you were talking about, about being pigeon toed or being on the inside or the outside of your foot or having dropped arches, it's a strategy your body's come up with to get stuff done. And so we want to ask why your body is doing that in the first place, because each of those has a purpose and it's it's making you as efficient as you possibly can with the setup that you have in your body, with the history of all of the patterns you've you've um, trained yourself into doing with all of the injury history that you have. Your body is going to be as efficient as it possibly can right now with all of the things you've experienced. And so, a for example, if your toes or your feet are rotated out, that's a strategy for your body to get something done. And usually that's a strategy to pronate you. 
So if you rotate your feet out, so if you think about having your toes pointed out, your heels more in towards each other, that's going to try to bring your arches down to the ground. So you can try that yourself if you, for, for the listeners, if you stand up and you rotate your feet out, you can feel how it brings your arches down. So there's some reason in your history why you didn't want to pronate. And it may be an injury or, um, uh, you know, spend, for a lot of us, spending a lot of time seated as kids at desks and being in a sort of sedentary life, that you are rotating your feet out to try to create something that your body can't do on its own. And it's the same thing with any of these strategies. So whether your, your weight is shifted more onto your right foot, whether you're rotated to the left, whatever it is, it's your body trying to come up with a strategy, a solution to try to get a movement done that you can't do on your own. And sometimes I'll see this happen that someone will send their rib cage to the left because they can't get their body onto their left leg. So they're like, I'll send something over there. Whatever it is, it can be my jaw, it can be a scapula, whatever it is, I'm going to get myself onto that leg any which way that I can. And so when we're looking at these things, we, we kind of think more about, you know, why is it that you don't have ankle dorsiflexion? There's some reason in your body why your body doesn't want to do that. And it's going to try to make that movement somewhere else. So if the ankle isn't dorsiflexing, you can be guaranteed something else is doing more of that particular shape in the sagittal plane somewhere else in your body. You'll just have to find out where that is, that something else will be doing that for you. Because you have to get that movement done somehow. And your body will do it somehow. Maybe it is you lean forward as a strategy to load your tissues and get you moving forward. So you see a lot of people will walk by leaning because they're using gravity and their body weight to propel them forward instead of using their supination and their propulsion of their back leg to, to propel them forward. So we're all going to get it done somehow. And each of those reasons why you have your toes out or you have your missing movement in a joint is a strategy that your nervous system has. And so it's, it's really hard for me to say everybody with a, with a lack of ankle dorsiflexion needs to do X because each person's reason is going to be individual to them. And so we want to get curious about why is it your body has deleted your access to that motion? And how can we show your body that it can do that by giving the body part that's doing too much of that mo mo motion, take that away from that body part and reintroduce it to another body part. So it's kind of our, our aim philosophy is a bit different because we're looking at why. Why is the body doing that? What is the strategy that that is solving? What's the, the problem it's solving? And how can we give it some new inputs, some new feedback so that it can say, oh, actually a bit of ankle dorsiflexion is good. So I'm going to do a bit more of that. And then people are surprised. They're like, well, how come my ankle suddenly doing that? Like, Because I, I gave it permission. And uh, like you said, with um, sometimes athletic coaching is about very prescriptive, do this, do this, do this. But with the movement coaching, I just simply, I, I'm a guide. I'm not the boss. I'm not in charge. I'm just simply um, shining a light on the things that you're missing, that your nervous system's forgotten how to do. And it would, if it, if it could talk, it would, it would say to you, can, can you let me move my knee like that? Because that would be good. But it's not going to tell you that because last time you did that with your knee was when you blew out your ACL and it was really bad, a really bad experience. 
And so just like with survival, your body is going to block your awareness of those movements until we show it's safe to do that again. I can like kind of speak from personal experience real quick before I jump into something that kind of stood out to me there that we can expand on. I, I had an athlete that uh, hurt their hip pretty substantially, I guess maybe the year before, prior to this next experience. So hurt their hip. And then the next year, obviously playing in a contact sport, things happen, but they always had a wonky gait after that hip injury. And it, it appeared to be happening more from the lower leg complex whenever I, you were looking at it in motion, whenever I'd look at it in slow motion. But whenever I took them through and ran some processes, we actually discerned that the threat process was really coming from that old pelvis in, injury. And once we cleared that up, their gait cycle began to become more optimal again. So like everything that you've said through this conversation, I've had from a different lens perhaps, but hands-on experience with a lot of the different things that you're saying. I had another athlete that wasn't the case. You know, it was truly located in those lower areas around where we deemed the threat to be originally. So it's it's interesting. I, I have referenced square one all the time, but we interview the nervous system with with that particular um, model that they utilize. And, and I like to do that. And you're doing the same thing as far as like looking at, you know, joint centration and finding that neutral and finding, you know, what are your drivers essentially? So everything you're presenting is much is geared towards the same thing, just a different model here. So I want to talk about wedges because anytime that Gary Ward's brought up. I've listened to him discuss this uh, quite often. So we can simplify this a little bit more, I guess you could say, for some different deficiencies within the foot. So if you're overly pronated or collapsed or stuck there, what are some different ways that you would see the utilization of the wedges that Gary uses um, to help drive those more optimized, neutralized positions? Sure. So um, if you're, you can be pronated in a whole bunch of different ways and each body is different. Each pr presentation of, of how you're in a pro pronated position, it's going to be different. And so what we do is we want to be able to teach your body how to get into a good, clean, good, high quality pronation. And so that pronation would involve all of the different bones in the foot moving in all three planes of motion, the appropriate amount to get you into a nice textbook kind of pronation shape in the foot. And so the wedges help with a variety of things. So for example, if we use it for, for several different things, one is it's like a ramp. So, you know, like a steep driveway. So if you let the brake off of your car on a ramp, you're going to pretty quickly go down the ramp. And so the idea there with the wedges is it encourages joint motion by, as a ramp, uh, in, in forces you to roll away from the ramp. So that will help you roll a heel forward, for example, or it will help you evert the foot or um, get some, some movement in parts of the foot where the, the roll just isn't happening. So that's one thing that we do is to use the wedges to encourage a joint movement that's missing. So rolling down that ramp allows that joint to move. Um, another way would be to fill some space. So say if you were um, supinating. So if you were, imagine you've seen someone do a golf swing and their big toe comes up off the ground. So that means that you don't have the oppositions going on in your foot. And in order to encourage the forefoot to stay down on the ground as you supinate, we would put a wedge in underneath the ball of the big toe and stay, say, keep in contact with that wedge. 
So go ahead and do that same sort of golf swing type of mo movement. But if you keep awareness that you're still touching the wedge, then that's going to cause your forefoot from being in an, an inverted shape when you first tried it to then being in more of an everted shape because it's now keeping contact with the wedge, which gives you a whole bunch of feedback all the way up your body that says, oh, that's a stable leg now. And so we're able to either... Uh, create movement with the wedges to encourage a, a joint to open or roll that hasn't done in a long time, or we can fill space to try to encourage the uh, something to stay down that's going up. And another way that we would use it would be to encourage uh, a tripod on the ground. So we want a nice stable tripod under your foot, both for a pronation and a supination. So both of those types of movements in your foot require you to be nice and stable underneath there. So if you have a really narrow tripod and that tripod is under your heel and under maybe your uh, fourth and second toes instead of nice and wide under the fifth and first toes, then we would put wedges in on maybe one of either side to give the brain feedback that, oh, there's a wider base available to me. So I can make myself a nice wider tripod in order to allow that safety factor for your system to say, okay, I can safely, solidly pronate or supinate on top of that much much more stable base of support. So the wedges have a whole bunch of different reasons why we might use them. We also use them for another really interesting reason, which is to test the whole rest of the body. So say if you're having trouble moving, you're having trouble up in your shoulders and you have a pronated foot. Well, it may be that the pronated foot is blocking a movement way, way, way up the chain. And so what we'll do is we'll use wedges to put your foot into a more neutral position to see if supinating you will free up the movements in your shoulder. And quite often, uh, we'll, I'll use that with all of my sessions. If someone's having trouble with something and I see their foot position is in a, in a certain way, I'll wedge them to give them space throughout the whole system to see if that frees up. So I'll be like, okay, your shoulder issue is really a pronated foot. So I need to look at your foot, give your foot access to that center as we talked about finding neutral, finding its ability to supinate, finding each of that full spectrum of movement. And that clears up what's going up, up the chain. Because what is that Ida Rolf uh, quote, where you think it is, it ain't. <laughs> so it sometimes wedging can give us a testing, a way of testing things throughout the body to see if the foot is the reason why you're feeling something somewhere else. So lots of different ways of using the wedges. Don't you just love those moments too? It's like, sometimes it's disbelief from the client, but don't you just love those moments where, but if it works, it works, right? So that's all that matters. And concepts you're throwing out there, like that idea of stability, that's what brought me to the foot um, because I got interested a lot in sprinting and stuff. So I started looking at, you know, foot strikes and stuff. And then realizing I started lifting barefoot uh, myself and the experience was completely different. And that brings me to that next thing that kind of stood out to me. You're talking about the wedges and this idea of pressure. And it's not only important for like what we feel proprioceptively, like pressure in the body is really everything because a lot of what we've been talking about today is actually like the modulation of pressure pressure throughout the entire body, like how that flows through us. And it's through a variety of systems. It could be breathing. It could be um, the way that our, our contractions and our expansions and everything are going on. But 
that idea of pressure regulation. If you can't regulate your pressures and you're kind of at the mercy of what end of the spectrum you appear to be on, kind of like what you're referencing there. And then I also like the idea of testing the body. And that's actually going to jump into the last two kind of things I want to discuss here, because I believe it's important to have like those metrics, those things that you can look at and say, okay, this is my screen or whatever you want to call it. Some people don't like to use that, but let's talk about some of the different ways. And you just kind of referenced a few of them that you like to test for proficiency of movement or for issues throughout the body. I want to do that within mind, the idea of building just a baseline of something I can do every day to be a more healthy and holistic uh, human being as far as my overall health. The way I do those assessments is I, I screen um, body part by body part all the way through in the three planes of motion one at a time. So I'm going to look at when you flex your knees and extend your knees, what else is going on through the rest of the body? So I should expect a certain response to knee flexion throughout your body. And um, so I'll, I'll ask the client to just flex and extend, not, not movement Olympics here, just a tiny little bit of, of almost involuntary movement, just a tiny little bit of movement. And then I want to know how it feels. Is it effortful or not? Anything come up, any symptoms or anything like that? And then I'm going to, with my without telling them, I'm looking at the rest of their body and how their body responds to a knee flexion. So I should expect a certain number of joint actions and timing. And so I'm seeing whether those things are happening. And then I would, so I move up through the sagittal plane through each of the joints, ask them to move them with their awareness and just see how the quality of those movements in terms of what is moving from where, is it moving from a place of centration or not? And then whether it's causing a, a certain cascade of movements into other parts of the body. And then I move into the frontal plane. So I look at all the frontal plane movements. I look at the quality of the movement. So is it equal left and right? Um, what does it feel like to the to the client? Um, and then we we go through, you know, looking at what the other responses are throughout the body. And then I do my transverse plane and I do each of the movements and again, scanning through, see how it feels, what the quality of the movements is and how the rest of the body responds. Um, I also do a full gait analysis. So I will video video them walking and I slow it down and I look phase by phase and look at what what's going on in terms of the missing pieces of the puzzle of the movement. So I want to know how they're how they manage their mass when they're standing still. So where their perceived center is. I want to know how they use the full potential of their movements through gait and how they're aware of their abilities to move in and out of each shape when they're standing still. So all three of those things tell me interesting information. The the postural assessment, the standing still, tells me where their perceived center is, which we've talked a lot about today. The gait cycle tells me how they manage flow and, and energy efficiency throughout their cycle, uh, throughout their gait cycle. And then their ability to stand still and move into certain patterns tells me their awareness of how can you get into and out of the different joint actions. And I also do a full movement screening with the feet. So awareness of can you pronate and supinate? Can you uh, get your windlass mechanism going, which I think you had James Earls was talking about. Um, so are you able to do certain motions and can your, the movement of your feet, when you move your feet, does your body notice? And when you move your body, does your feet notice? So I'm looking at those connections from, if you were to move your feet, do your legs do certain things we would expect? 
And so from there, we want to start bringing back the movements that are missing. So the big sort of low-hanging fruit associated with their particular pain point, we're going to start there. And I'm going to start reintroducing those movements with maybe with the wedges, maybe with um, certain um, cues of being able to get them to get into those movements that are missing. Um, and so that's sort of how I go through is what is this per particular person standing in front of me today missing? What's the biggest thing that their body is asking them to get back? And how can I cue them into being able to do that on their own, being able to reorient through their neuroplasticity, the awareness that, ah, I have access to that thing. I can do that thing again. So that's kind of my, that's sort of my intake um, as well, I do I do a full history. So I want to do, know the connections between, okay, you were a, um, a volleyball player and you're having trouble with your shoulders or you're having trouble with breathing, you know, decades later, whatever it was that was going on. Or, oh, I totally forgot. I got launched out of a car and landed on something or you know, <laughs> hurt my big toe. And now you're moving my feet and I remember. So these sorts of things, we want to connect the dots between them. The thing I, I just kind of want to end on, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to talk about where people can find you is those daily practices. So like, I know you said it'd be highly individualized, but in your own opinion, like what are some different things that we as individuals, it doesn't even have to be for like athletics, but we as individuals can do to be more healthy, to be more resilient, just any mobility or breath work practices or any other aspect that stands out to you as far as the concepts based upon everything you've presented today? I would say move more and move in ways you don't usually move. So there's probably very particular shapes you can do like a if you're nerdy about it you can do a movement audit and be like what shapes do I hang out in what shapes do I move in every day and what shapes do I never get into and so give your body the feedback to get into shapes you've never been in before and you'll you'll have a lot of learning from being into those particular positions and so uh, one of the ones I do is what positions can I not breathe in lie down on the floor whatever position you need to be in and be like what is a really uncomfortable place that I can't breathe? And what is it about that position? Get curious about that because that's where you're going to be vulnerable. That's where you're not going to be familiar with. And your breathing, as you know, will reveal a lot about your comfort zone, your, your comfort level in those positions. So whether it's giving your feet, like going barefoot, like you say, training barefoot, uh, spending more time barefoot, getting yourself on um, uneven surfaces so that your body gets some feedback about what all those you know, a quarter of all the joints in your in your body are in your feet for a reason. So being able to give them a, a bit of feedback. But then, yeah, being in shapes you're not used to being in. And our, our sports can be very specific about certain shapes that you need to be in. And then not being in those other shapes. And suddenly you find yourself, you have to be in one of those shapes. Either you got to jump over somebody all of a sudden in your sport uh, you didn't expect or you uh, have to reach for something or you suddenly trip or there's something unexpected that happens in your life you want to be resilient to that and that's just a daily practice of that for me my daily practice is I, I sit on the floor all the time I try to avoid chairs as much as I can that's really great for for a lot of different forms of mobility but also my my core strength because I'm always holding myself up. And then uh, a lot of anatomy and motion practitioners have a daily movement check-in. So we check your foot pressures. So standing still where your foot pressures are, where you're feeling your feet against the floor can tell you about where your, your postural center is. So if your weight is shifted to the right, you're going to feel more pressure on your right foot and maybe the outside of your right foot or more to the to the front, you'll feel more of the pressure in your toes. And so checking in with your foot pressures all the time can give you an early warning signal of things going on in terms of your, your resting position. 
And then doing movement screening. So I talked about what I do in my own clinical practice when I see people of screening them, um, checking your knee flexions and extensions, your hip anterior, you know, your pelvis anterior posterior tilt, your rotations, your lateral flexions, just going through and finding your trouble spots and checking them day to day. It can be a couple of minutes. It's like, oh, okay, there's there's that early warning sign. I'm having trouble laterally flexing to the right. So something's going on. I know what I need to do. So it's just that simple check-in of just being curious every day about, hmm, I think my hip might be getting slightly better because I'm not feeling that thing, whatever that thing is. Or, oh, that that signal's coming up that means that I need to really pay more attention to the thing I'm neglecting. So it's just a, a way of checking in every day, having early warning signals of things that you're like, oh, I've been ignoring that thing. Um, it just gives you that daily practice, that daily giving yourself that time every day of what do I need to to make sure I'm keeping track of. It can be really simple. I think I've said this on a prior podcast. It could have been a while back, but like a lot of the times I'll brush my teeth with the opposite hand than I typically do. Like I'm left handed, so I'll brush with my right and then I'll balance on one leg while I'm doing it. And like try do the try and do those two things simultaneously and you'll find that you feel like a like a kid again or something. Like you can't balance, right? But it's challenging your brain. I always like to think about the neurological aspect of it. It's challenging your brain in a in a new unique way, challenging a different pathway, right? It's that simple. And you know, I had something wrote down that I didn't say um before we jumped onto that part was the idea that we're often are so rushed to get to like an end point, um, especially whenever you're dealing with athletic populations. And the end point in most instances is going to be extension, uh, kind of like we referenced earlier in the conversation. So like finding those areas to where you can actually learn to rotate, to flex, to do all these things and to like actually own those positions. That's something that we've actually been referencing throughout this entire conversation. But I think it ties nicely to that because sometimes, yes, you need to rush. It's competition. But then other times we need to feel, be aware, have that interoception, that idea of awareness overall. You mentioned that you like to kind of uh, do all your work in like a not not in a sitting uh, nature. So like I've done that a lot, too. I, I, right now I'm sitting in a chair. But normally, you know, a lot of the times if I have access to something that's low lying, I'll get into different positions and like you can feel hold those positions for a little bit and tell me the tension that you feel and the different pressures. Your body's not adapted to it because we don't do that anymore. So it's great to bring in that other end of the spectrum like we talked about that's prevalent in all forms of movement. So good points there. I I like those little actionable things that everybody can take bite-sized pieces, you know, like you've said for a lot of things, it's different for everyone, but if you can just bring in a couple little pieces, it can have a, you have a really large effect. Yeah. I can just up-level things because you're, you're exploring the end ranges and the things that the, the dark areas that you're not used to. And just being able to do, like you say, brushing your teeth with the other hand. One of the things I do is learn languages and you have to pronounce things differently. And so it's a, a really effort effortful for your brain to figure out how to make a sentence in a, in a different way, but also the the pronunciations, you know, having to tongue positions and things that you've never, never tried out. So there's so many um, potentials of uh, being a beginner at things and just even the, the mindset itself of being a beginner and being okay with failing and being okay with not being good at something. And that's often what happens with these um, movement reprogramming is you're like, oh, I can't. It's, it's like, and, and people think, oh, if I'm going back to basics, it's regressing and it's frustrating. But the more that you can go back and work on the basics is the faster you're going to up level things because you're mastering the tiny little, little details. Like usually, you know, you're, as you're getting better, 
better at something, you have gains really quickly. And then it's sort of these tiny, tiny little gains. And that's the, the precision of those little movements that can be the gains right there where you're plateauing that are important. Just paying attention and getting curious and being willing to, to work on those tiny, subtle little things. Yeah, I can appreciate that going back to the basics. Like I'm a little bit older. I'm still pretty young in my 30s. I still work out a good bit. Uh, but, you know, at one point in my life, it was all about chasing the high point. It was all about chasing the max number. It was, but now I've taken a step back and I'm like, number one, it might not be the most important, the most intelligent thing to do at this moment. Um, so going back to the basics and like you really, I just like to go on feel a lot, like you talked about, and it, it feels good to bring in that variability, that variety. I talked about liking the box and, and uh, I really like barbell lifting, but liking bringing boxing in, bringing sprinting in, bringing crawling in, bringing hanging in, all those different things. It just makes me feel better. And at the end of the day, that's what I'm trying to be, a, a more holistic, healthy human being. So I can appreciate all those different lines of logic you threw out there. The last thing I want to give you an opportunity to do before we jump off of this conversation is tell people where they can find you, tell people anything that you have out there to offer and anything that you reference here, guys, it's going to be located in my show notes. And it's also going to be located in the write-up on the uh, website. So check all that stuff out. Sure. So um, I'm uh, a practitioner of, of anatomy and motion. And so if you want to find out more about anatomy and motion, you can look up Gary Ward. Um, his website is finding center with the, the British spelling .co.uk. So he has lots of courses on there uh, for lay people and for practitioners. Um, I'm not affiliated with him. I'm just simply one of his practitioners. And um, if you want to find me, if you want to work with me, I work online internationally so we can work one-on-one. -on -one. Um, you can find me at flowmovement.ca. Um, if you want to get uh, an idea of my process and my my the sorts of exercises that I do, you can find me on my YouTube channel, also Flow Movement Therapy. I'm a, on Instagram a bit, but I put most of my stuff long form on YouTube because it's a bit better that way. Um, it's hard to put one minute sound bites on Instagram for people to understand what I do. So that's the best place to find if you want to see creating a reel is a nightmare for me typically from this, totally. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but it is, it's, it's rewarding, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, YouTube's the best place. If you want to get some, some more long form content of figuring out how, how I th think through these things and what kinds of exercises I give for different sorts of pain points. Well, thank you. I just want to take time to thank you for taking time out of your day and sitting down with me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've enjoyed the different perspective. I'm looking for as many perspectives as I can possibly provide. So I was so glad whenever we kind of reached out, discussed on email, all these different talking points, we have a lot of shared interests. So really enjoyed the rationale that you were able to lend to the conversation. And again, guys, check out the show notes and as well as a write up for any of those things that she just referenced for a quick click to that. So thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Thanks for having me on today. It's great to uh, to get this perspective out there and to start chatting with folks like yourself who are athletic minded and really are, are open to lots of different thought processes. So it was, a, it was great fun. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Check the show notes for links to Holly's socials as well as other content. You can head over to FromTheGroundUpAthleticPerformance.com to check out the detailed weekly write-up featuring concepts discussed on this week's episode. While you're there, you can also sign up for Ground Level, the monthly podcast newsletter featuring condensed key points from all featured episodes. The article section is now live. Make sure to check out In-Season Training Organization for American Football, 
which details a 15-week training cycle and the rationale behind the programming. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button to keep up with all the latest content and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so. Until next time, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.